CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is the Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the Metaverse, Web3, and more with stories that matter to the crypto world. All on the Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to the Hash Coindesk Daily Show, where we discuss the big issues and controversies of crypto for the day. I'm here with Adam Levine and Sandali, who's, I'm so sorry, I'm forgetting your last name while we're live on the air. Help me out. No worries. It's Handagama, but Sandali is good. Sandali Handagama, who conveniently like has our... Ah, okay, that helps. Sandali Handagaba, who has our first story today about the latest in a long and lengthening series of maybe bailouts by FTX. Tell us more. I will. I liked Adam's side eye over there. FTX Ventures, which is the investment arm of Sam Bankman-Fried's FTX crypto exchange, has agreed to buy 30% of Skybridge Capital for an undisclosed amount. Skybridge is an alternative asset management firm founded by former White House Communications Director Anthony Scaramucci. The firm said it will use some of the funds to buy some $40 million in cryptocurrencies to hold on its balance sheet. At the end of June this year, it held around $2.5 billion in assets, of which $800 million were in digital assets. Earlier this year, Skybridge also started a new investment vehicle to be able to put money into Bitcoin mining. Meanwhile, Benjamin Fried is continuing to make headlines. FTX has been very busy attempting to bail out troubled crypto lenders like Voyager and BlockFi recently. His bailout efforts haven't all been great, but he has said it's okay to do a deal that is moderately bad in bailing out a place if it meant the broader crypto economy remained healthy. Folks over at CNBC that broke the story have started comparing him to JP Morgan, and uh, Bangman Fried said the deal was not just about expanding the crypto community, but also bringing the traditional and digital asset worlds together. I'm sure, as you said, FTX's recent moves have been discussed at length on the show, but it keeps making them. So, David, I'll mm. throw to you uh, your thought on this, Chris. Yeah, I, I think just to uh, to be clear on one thing, there is at least no disclosure that Skybridge is actually in need of a quote unquote bailout. At least. I am not aware of of their financial situation. And to be clear, uh, as as Sam Bankman-Fried points to, this is not a crypto hedge fund. This is a, a traditional hedge fund by and large. It's been around since 2005. 
and Scaramucci kind of pivoted towards crypto a little bit over the last couple of years, but they were not, for example, Friero's Capital, where that was their entire bread and butter. So that's, you know, unclear. Maybe uh, FTX is swooping in at a moment of weakness and taking a chunk that it hopes will grow in the future. But we're reading between the lines a bit on that one. Adam, what do you feel about this like joining of traditional finance with the, the more crypto focused world? You know, when we're when we're talking about stories like this, you have to look at kind of what's the driving factor behind it. And from what we can tell, again, from what's been made public, at least, this doesn't appear to be a rescue. It looks a lot more to me like this is about FTX. This is about the move that they've been on and the expansion mode that they've been in incredibly. Because again, remember, for as bad as things are out there for, you know, the typical crypto company, FTX is not the typical crypto company. FTX mm -hmm. is very much in sort of the catbird seat and they can look around and they can say, aha, where can we achieve sort of the best value investment today? Because our thesis is that this stuff will be significantly more valuable in the future and that this is the low part of a cycle. So we've seen companies do this type of thing in the past. I think that FTX certainly is the largest example that we continue to see just in terms of splashing that money out there. But again, if you look at how successful they've been, at establishing themselves as perhaps not the top exchange, but one of the most profitable enterprises and also one of the sort of mm -hmm. broadest, you know, reaching enterprises, I really, this seems consistent to me as they are diversifying, right? And that diversification for Skybridge, the advantage comes that, hey, they're getting some capital in that's going to allow them to really kind of double down on their crypto investment without putting any more money from their existing investors. And it's coming from the crypto people. Uh, whereas the, the other side, you know, is that they're going to own, uh, FTX is going to own 30% of what is a, a good sized fund as a result of this. So it seems like it's a win-win to me. And that's pretty consistent. Like they're not just throwing money around, they're making strategic investments that they believe will both sort of boost the profile of the space itself, which is really a way to boost the sort of uh, profile of FTX as one of the largest companies and most important players in the space. And then simultaneously, it's, it's bargain shopping, right? It's like, where can we go to, you know, to deploy capital? Because otherwise, they're keeping it all somewhere, right? You got it. You got those billions of dollars, you got to put it somewhere. So this makes total sense to me. What do you think? Yeah, suddenly you want to add more? You have other thoughts? No, definitely. I didn't read this as a rescue either. I mean, they've just recently been in headlines for, you know, bailout related news. But yeah, this is definitely more of a question of kind of Bangman Fried's expanding influence over the industry as well. He's he's definitely got a long-term plan and he's not afraid to kind of lose some money and in mm -hmm. making sure crypto has a has a future. And it's really cool to see that sort of happen in this space. And you know, he's been compared to a lot of um different people. He's here, he's there, he's everywhere. It was it, there was like a Roy Kent reference, like he's got his fingers in a lot of things right now, I think that he's really, really working on expanding his power. And I don't know, there are yeah. some mixed feelings about that. You know, is, is, is that making the space more centralized? Is it concentrating power in one person? I've seen that debate go around as well, but I think yeah. he's doing some interesting work. David. We'll see. I will offer one last thing before we transition to our next story, which is one interesting thought here is that Skybridge, as a, a longstanding fund, does have both some public legitimacy and some, you know, people who are experienced and who know procedures and things like that. And so I, I, I wore a shirt today to point out the contrast between Skybridge <laughs> and another infamous entity, which, you know, you want to stand up an alternative to your, your three arrows capitals of the world. 
who might then still take on that role of being a hedge fund in crypto going forward. So, so I think that strategically speaking, big picture, that could be part of the, the agenda here too. But we're going to wrap this up. And Adam has a piece of news that, I mean, it's good news with a filigree of, I got to say, some, some weird feelings around it from me at least. But go for it, Adam. I think this is going to be a fairly large topic, if for no other reason than I probably won't shut up about it. So I apologize in advance for that. But indeed, and I guess better news than the alternative, Bitcoin has logged its largest gains in percentage terms in about six months this morning. And at least for now, the rally is continuing up more than 10% over the last 24 hours. I think it was at 10.5% last time I looked. There are a couple of potential catalysts behind this morning's action. The first is the traders have been positioning themselves for things to get worse for Bitcoin before they get better based on current momentum. And a lot of people betting on lower prices had to buy as the price went up to cover those bets. It's a classic short squeeze scenario. And with more than $100 million worth of bets on lower prices being liquidated over just the past 24 hours, it's likely amplified today's gain significantly. But in the longer term, and to my, and to my perspective, more important as a story here is the big picture or macroeconomic sort of situation. Modern markets have long been addicted to what's referred to as supportive monetary policy and which many traders in the U.S. have long called the Fed put. I think about it as taking pain pills. When you've broken your leg, they're really helpful. But once the leg is healed, and then you should probably stop because the medicine not only becomes mm. dangerous, but it's highly addictive. Stock market valuations and to a lesser extent housing prices are one of the most visible ways that we measure the success of the economy and indirectly of how good governments in power are doing on economic issues. And these economic doctors at central banks, though, are much better at prescribing than they are at tapering the patient off when the need has passed. In economic terms, that's caused inflation to spill out of risk assets, where it's perceived as a good thing, and into the real economy, where it's making life increasingly difficult for all but the richest among us. It's only at this point that central banks somewhat recently have acknowledged that they even have a problem, and they're quickly moving to cut the patient off, basically cold turkey, with historically large interest rate hikes. We just saw the ECB raise by three quarters of a percentage point, which was the largest interest rate hike in history and represented a more than a doubling of their core interest rate in a single day, uh, which again had never happened before. So markets don't want that. Markets remain addicted to this stuff. And the story that they're telling themselves is that, well, the, the doctor is going to start giving us the medicine again. And I don't need to mm -hmm. actually make any changes in my life to accommodate what's going to happen because, hey, everything is going to be fine. There's actually a lot more to this story, but I think that this is probably a good place to hand it off to you, David. You know, I, the, I, where I want to go with this, though, is the dynamic uh, between governments and central banks, specifically with Europe as a prime example. But we're seeing it really everywhere, and it's super important. Yeah. But before we get to that, kind of what's your take Yeah, I mean, I, I should start off by, by making some, some humble noises, because I was definitely in the camp that believed uh, this, this inflation wave was going to be transitory. And, and I think that, that that ship has definitely sailed. I was 100% wrong about that. But having acknowledged that, whether I didn't read the ING report, so I don't know the exact contours of their argument. But if you're a person who is trading speculative assets on the expectation of a Fed rate hike in 2023, I mean, the word for that is delusional. In our industry, we call it hopium. I mean, there's just, it's not going to happen. Um, if you look at the curve as the Fed does try to bend down US inflation, we have gotten a little bit of, of a retrace, but I just don't think this trade reflects exactly how sticky inflation can be and clearly has become at this point, for one thing. And B, even if the Fed does manage to get inflation back down to 2%, which is a big, big, big job from where we are right now, which is, um, I think, 8.5 most recently. And, and you know, even if they do that, you then have to have a catalyst where they are motivated 
to drop rates again, which means probably a pretty huge recession or at least a pretty sizable downturn. I mean, I think that the Fed put, I'm not going to say it's dead, but it is going to take some real necromancy to resurrect it at this point. And also the timeline on this trade is wrong. If you're longing Bitcoin right now based on interest rate moves next year, that's just not how it works. You're going to have to do that a lot closer to the actual date for that trade to work out for you. So, you know, 10%, great. And to be clear, we don't know 100%. You never know in a market what exactly is driving one day's action. And usually you can't even point to it. But I'm just going to put it out there that if your rationale for going long on Bitcoin right now is this idea that the trend in, in central bank action is going to reverse, you're riding the wrong train, I guess I'll say. Sandali, what do you think about all this? No, I, I agree with you. I feel like it's kind of wishful thinking. It's very optimistic to the point where it's kind of hard to wrap my head around. I mean, sentiment has been so bad, like strongly bad, that Bitcoin betters were gearing up for a short squeeze, as, as Adam said. You know, we've seen the highest liquidation since the big like mega crash on June 14th. And, you know, every indication that we've gotten from central bankers around the world is basically inflation curbing measures. So I, I'm also interested to see like what the ING kind of based this kind of prediction on. But, you know, it's cool that investors and markets can kind of rile each other up like this from time to time. So we all collectively go what's going on. But just another day in this crazy world, uh, in the real world, <laughs> you know, it doesn't look like inflation is going to yeah. You know, die down anytime soon. So, Adam. And Adam, I'll throw it to you. But one point on that real world thing I mean, another point against this thesis is that jobs are still coming in strong in the United States, at least. I mean, we don't have here a lot of indications that the real economy is trending against inflation either. So, again, more reason to, to not expect what the market may be expecting right now. Adam, go for it. Okay, so I am inherently a contrarian. I do not trust central banks. I do not trust governments. I think that they routinely misrepresent reality in ways that make them look better. And I think that with that understanding, it's somewhat easier for me to understand what's happening here than it is for a lot of people. Um, so there's a couple of dynamics in play here. The first off is that nobody believes the Fed, but the Fed wants people to believe them because to the extent that people believe the Fed is to the extent that they will then make changes today about what they think the Fed will do tomorrow, which is why it's so important to the Fed that people not think there will be rate decreases next year. Because if they do, then they will start to reverse the trend today and undo all of the work that the Fed has done. Now, does that mean that the Fed won't actually reduce rates next year? No, it doesn't. Uh, they are actually making these decisions on almost a month to month basis. So there's zero guarantee that this will remain the same, and it's very due to conditions. And there are huge political considerations in this too, because although money is supposed to not be political, the reality of it is, is that the dynamics of money influence the economy in the ways we've discussed here a huge amount. And as a result of that, it means that especially as we get closer to the midterms, if the Fed continues on this path of historically aggressive interest rate hikes, they're effectively dooming the Biden administration's ability to do anything over the next couple of years. So that's my read on the situation. I think there's actually a non-zero chance that we see a reversal of this policy just for political considerations because of that. But again, the narrative is now is, is one or the other, right? But it's a question of who do you trust? The other dynamic that's really important here is that central banks want, are concerned about their credibility and they want to bring down inflation. But that's something that is directly negative to the performance of an economy. And like I said, this is a political consideration, not just a monetary one. 
So in the United States, what that looks like is here's the Fed saying things are going to be worse for longer, right? And then over here, here's the Biden administration saying, hey, we're going to forgive between 300 billion and a trillion dollars worth of student uh, debt, which is very, very inflationary. And the and also they passed an Inflation Reduction Act, so-called, that adds a $1.5 billion worth of additional spending, which is inherently inflationary. That same dynamic is playing out right now, by the way, in Europe, where the European Central Bank had this historically aggressive rate hike where they more than doubled the rate. But at the same time, due to sanctions on Russia and the energy situation in Europe, where I don't know if people are paying attention, but uh, energy rates there are up in some cases more than a thousand percent so far this year. And it's taken, it's basically made it so that governments are now bailing out and may in fact wind up nationalizing some energy companies, which means that although the central bank is tightening, the government is borrowing money, governments around the block are, are borrowing new money and then spending it, which is very inflationary. So the central banks do not have a direct way to reduce inflation. They have an indirect way to reduce inflation by increasing the cost of borrowing money. But if governments on the other side are printing and creating new money for purposes of, of politics, right? Because if you have somebody whose you know, energy bill was $300 and it goes up to $4,000, well, dang, that's not a government that you're going to be happy with, especially if it's not something that's actually hurting the sanctioned party anyways. So like I said, this is a really big topic. It's one of the most important things, in my opinion, in the world today. And that dynamic is the complicated factor. It's not just about central banks. It's not just about governments. Mm -hmm. It's not just about us. It's not just about money. It's about all of these things together and the complicated soup that that creates is a mess that nobody can predict. And because of that, there's just all this uncertainty and all this chaos around the world. So I expect that to get worse before it gets better, but it could be fixed very quickly in Europe, at least by simply reducing the sanctions on Russia and allowing enough energy to come back into the block such that they didn't have to be bidding each other up with bailouts. But that's the situation today and seems unlikely to change. But we can move on. Uh, just to clarify one thing real quick, Adam, I mean, the sanctions on Russia are one thing, but Russia has also just started cutting things off. So it's of not necessarily entirely flexible. I mean, but you addressed response, the other though. comment I was going to yeah. make. Asanda Lee, do you want the last word on this one before we move on to our next story? No, please go ahead. Okay. Finish your thoughts. <laughs> no, uh, I, I think Adam got to it. I mean, it's it's definitely political, but also not political. It's It's going to be interesting. Coindesk has a new event. It's called Ideas, the Investing in Digital Assets and Enterprises Summit. It facilitates capital flow and market growth by connecting the digital economy with traditional finance. Join us for a 360 investment experience where you can source, invest, and secure the next big deal in digital assets, all in one place. Use code HASH20 for 20% off a general pass. Register today at coinest.com forward slash ideas. The next story that we're going to talk about also has to do with, uh, well, we're, we're talking about money. We're always talking about money. In this case, it's the in-house money, more or less, of Binance, BUSD, which we found out a couple of days ago is going to basically become the only stablecoin actively used on the huge global trading platform. And that's going to have some benefits for Binance, according to a new report from Bank of America. And it's interesting to look at the numbers here in a couple of different ways. So you're going to have coins, including USDC and USP, which is a Paxos dollar. I might got might have that tag wrong, but those are going to be automatically converted to, to Binance's stablecoin when they're onboarded onto the platform. That's going to add, according to this estimate, 908 million 
to the total cap of BitUSD, Binance USD, sorry, that's going to have a benefit to Binance. That's going to increase the market cap of the USD by about 5%. They're, they're currently at about 20 billion, so you're going to get an extra billion out of that. That's not insignificant, but it's interesting that it's not that big because USDC and the Paxos dollar really don't have that much footprint on Binance, which was interesting for me to find out. Most of the, that, that money from USD is going to come from USDC, which apparently they only have about 800 million or 2% of their total supply is on Binance right now. So that was interesting to see. It's just not that much for USDC. So they're, they're not going to be that much effective. Paxos is much smaller to start with, and only about 1% of their total cap or 10 million is on Binance. So you know, some marginal gain for Binance, which is going to generate revenue because you get to manage that treasury. Um, but, uh, but you know, not a, not a huge set of moves here in general. But uh, Adam, what's your, what's your thoughts about this? How big of a deal is this for Binance? And, and the one thing I haven't mentioned is once you start looking longer term, then there are some ecosystem implications that might be bigger. Yeah, I think that this is honestly a lot more attention to this story as it's sort of come out. Like in the, in the beginning, it was like, oh, this is interesting. This is a attack, a zero-sum game vampire attack, right? Against like the second largest stablecoin by the third largest stablecoin. And I think that as, as we've gotten more news, it's gotten less and less interesting. It just kind of makes sense for Binance to do this. And it seems like the projects that they're disintermediating to a certain extent, like, don't even care. So from that perspective, I think it's fine. From the perspective of like the match between the types of things, if you think about it, USDC and the other uh, tokens that they're talking about really represent kind of the regulated US perspective on stablecoins. And so they present some risk there. And if you look at how Binance works, Binance doesn't allow US customers. So the overlap there between the people who would want to use USDC stablecoin versus something that isn't necessarily under the sanctioning power of the US government versus something like Tether, well, that actually kind of makes a lot of sense too. And then also the consolidation of, um, of markets, because previously they did have some markets that traded in these other tokens, like that also just makes sense from a liquidity perspective. So mm -hmm. I think that, you know, it, at this point, we now know enough to say, okay, this is a logical move that really seems more like it's kind of house cleaning than it is any sort of strategically important thing. And, you know, uh, Binance continues to be a really important player in our space. So I imagine that that will continue. No, no, I think, I think, I mean, definitely they did it for a reason. And like Adam said, you know, it was painted out to be like a power play. And, you know, now I like this report a lot because it kind of goes into why this is a strategic and long-term move for, for Binance. It's going to, Effect to BUSD in a positive way on so many fronts, from utility to supply to, to revenue. And, you know, I do think, though, to, to include, you know, USDC withdrawals and not USDT, you know, that does, uh, you know, it, it does work as a combined hidden tether a little bit. You know, Web3 grows and crypto adoption goes up around the world. Stablecoins will increasingly be like, the the lar where the larger general population kind of buy first buy coming into crypto so we're going to see some very interesting moves from these kind of larger players in the space going head to head i mean here's my thought in traditional economics and even in the crypto world sometimes i've mostly heard of forced currency conversions or stopping support happening in the context of economic turmoil or sanctions not exactly private competition. So I might be totally mm. uninformed on this, but it's definitely something to watch. And I think it's such a key move. 
for Binance <laughs> at this point. Just to emphasize, Sorry. I wasn't aware, but they're stopping all tether withdrawals. Is that correct? I don't think so. I or, think that they just no, weren't doing the conversion no, 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 going no. in. They, it's, yeah. yeah, it's yeah. They have to manually do the conversion if you want to. Tether is oh, large right. enough customers that customers have to do it. Yeah. Yeah, customers yeah. have to do it. I mean, Tether is large yeah. enough that Binance has Tether trading markets still that are of sufficient size to not really be a concern from a liquidity perspective versus the smaller tokens, where, as you were yeah. saying, like they were a relatively smaller amount um, of volume. So it kind of makes sense to fold those into a much more liquid BUSD market. Whereas for Tether, again, like that's the real big player when it comes to these non-US-based markets as far as stablecoins are concerned. And there's a lot of historical precedents for people being very happy trading Tether as a pair with everything else, because Tether then is something that you can then withdraw and pull into a different exchange, whereas BUSD is primarily used within the Binance sort of ecosystem. So, I mean, again, it, it makes sense why, why they did it this way now that we have more information. At the time, it was sort of unclear, but eh, yeah. Yeah, yeah and that's it. another, that's one final data point to, to really emphasize that I got from the story that I wasn't aware of, which is that 86% of all BUSD is actually just on Binance which is fascinating and, you know, makes the, the case for them overtaking USDC or Tether, I think, a lot weaker than I thought it might have been on, on its face. It's really just a utility token for trading on Binance for the most part, at least right now. We'll see where it goes from here. Any last thoughts before we wrap this up? I mean, I guess one question for me is, what's your, like, if you had to personally use a stablecoin and you had to keep the money in it for a month, what stablecoin would you use? For me, it's USDC as somebody who's based in the US yeah. and that's a kind of obvious choice. Yeah, I, I, think, that's, I think that's really obvious. And, and uh, I don't think this is going to hurt that narrative significantly at all. So I think that's it for us today on The Hash. This has been Adam, David, and Sandali, And we will be back next week, hopefully with a host who actually knows what they're doing. Thanks, everybody. You did great, David. You did <laughs> you great. Good conversation. Thanks, and thanks. we'll catch you later. Have a great weekend. Have a great weekend, everybody. See you guys. Have a great weekend. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Spring, nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress. That's what life's all about, in your career, relationships, and your finances. Let's talk about that last one. With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. So your weekly grocery run can feel even more productive, and that morning coffee can taste like a little victory. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities to get lower rates on loans, like for a new ride or finally having a home to call your own. Sounds like progress, right? With Chime's Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com disclosures for details.